1992, there was a story that appeared in many uh, Indiana newspapers, got picked up by the wire services and went around, about a 71-year-old man in Evansville, Indiana, who had his life saved in a very unusual way, particularly by a truck smashing into his house. You might think, that sounds bad. And generally, it would be. It was 2.35 in the morning, so thankfully, he was in bed and not out in his, his yard or on his porch. But this guy lost control of his truck on wet pavement and struck the curb and actually went up and sailed into the front porch of this man's house. His name was Leroy Book. I'm not saying that that sounds like the name of someone in Indiana. I'm just saying that was his name. Later, they sent a utility crew to make sure everything was okay. There wasn't any gas leaks. There wasn't any other issues that would have to be addressed. And as they were looking at his house, they discovered that Book's chimney and pipes were plugged with two feet of soot and leaves. Now, that blockage was causing the buildup of this odorless, poisonous gas called, anybody? Carbon monoxide. Have a carbon monoxide detector in your house because I love all of you and I want you to live. This guy didn't have one. And what was happening was as he burned natural gas, it was backing up. This carbon monoxide was filling his house. And it made sense because for the past two years, this man who lived alone had been sick with flu-like symptoms. And he kept thinking to himself, man, maybe it's because I'm getting a little older. I just can't shake this thing. And he started to live with the, this, this stuff like chills and nausea and, and the shakes and headaches. And he would even forget things like he'd go visit a friend and he wouldn't remember doing it the next day. Like he told the newspapers, I'd come too when I got out in the fresh air, but every day it was getting worse and worse. It was awful. And odds are very good that if that car hadn't smashed into his house when it did, that he would have died one of those days of carbon monoxide poisoning. Now, the ironic part of this story is that Booker, for most of his career, worked as a building contractor and was very much aware of the dangers of carbon monoxide and improperly vented furnaces. And he always warned his customers to regularly check their chimneys, their vents, and everything to make sure that they were not clogged. But he said, somehow or another, it never did dawn on me to check my own chimney. I think that this is one of the more fitting illustrations of what's going on in Corinth as we conclude our study of 2 Corinthians. That they had been looking in each other's chimneys and assessing each other's homes and inspecting Paul's ministry especially. There had been divisions, there had been schisms, there had been sin, and at times when they should have been helping their brother, they were not. If there was someone in blatant sin, oh, we don't want to deal with that. But there were times when they said, oh, that guy's doing this. There was backbiting. There was gossip. And there was this group of super apostles, false teachers, who was leading people astray into a very surface-level spirituality. And they were not doing what needed to be done, which was to look inward. Look at their own chimney and see what the state was. And so Paul says in this final passage, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. This is kind of a final appeal before he arrives for those who are still in sin or those who have fallen under the influence of the false apostles. And what he wants is restoration. 
And as you read, it gets more and more optimistic throughout this final portion of the the letter that that is what he is hoping for and even expecting. But if that's going to happen, first they need to look inward and examine themselves. This is nothing that we don't find in other books of the Bible. In my Bible, I'm at the end of 2 Corinthians. I see the beginning of Galatians right here. And in Galatians 6, we read, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself and not in his neighbor. All the way back in the Old Testament, we read in Lamentations 3, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgiven. There's, there's not really much new going on in this passage, by the way. It's a conclusion. It's a summary. It's a bit of a recap. But I believe it's a great reminder that a life of being forgiven for our sins cannot be separated from a life of turning away from our sins. It's very easy, we were talking about this in Sunday school today, to emphasize the things in the Scripture we like and gloss over those that we don't. So we read the story of the woman caught in adultery where everyone was about to throw stones at her and end her life for her sin. And Jesus said, I don't condemn you. And, and he who has no sin, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. And, and so he says, is no one left to condemn you? He said, no one, sir. Neither do I condemn you. And we kind of stop and go, see, Jesus doesn't condemn us. He said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, we're all set. But there's more to the story. Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. David, who certainly was in God's grace, the man after God's own heart, the one upon whom God made all these promises that would even be fulfilled in the Messiah, he fell into sin. And after being confronted about his sin by the prophet Nathan, he prayed these words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is a similar situation. Paul has come to them with their sin and placed it before them and said, listen, I'm going to be there, and when I get there, I want to find that you are repenting and have repented. I want to find that you've all examined yourselves and looked within. I I want to find that, that this is not going to be a cause for me to be harsh with you. They'd accused him, the super apostles, of being harsh in his letters and kind of weak and namby-pamby in person. And he says, I, I'd happily do that again. Here's a harsh letter. Let me be gentle when I arrive. And in this verse, he twice uses what we call the reflexive pronoun, which is like yourselves. Bounces back on you. Examine yourselves. And the word order there makes it emphatic. In in Greek, there aren't italics. I mean, there are now, but in biblical Greek, there weren't. And so word order stood in for this emphasis. And yourselves is first. Yourselves examine. Yourselves test. We should probably have it underlined or in, in italics in our Bibles. Test yourselves. Think about yourselves. This should be your first aim. Rather than seeking, as they have been, a proof of Christ speaking in me. You remember that? Last week? In in. Uh, chapter 13, verse 3, he says, Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, I will not spare those who sinned earlier. So, so he's saying, yeah, you want me to arrive and show you that Christ is speaking through me? I will. I will bring the power. I'll bring the thunder when I come. But it would be better if instead you just looked inside of yourselves. And when I arrived, I would find you at peace. 
I would find that you had repented of any of these sins you've been committed, that you have repented of following and falling into the trap of the super apostles, and we can just have a nice lunch together. But prove your own selves. For do you not know that Christ is in you? We were just singing about Christ being all around us, but even better news is that Christ is in us. This also comes up fairly frequently in, in Paul's writings. Romans 8.10 But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Christ in us is our righteousness. All the stuff I might do, all the good works I might you know, go out and say, hey, look at me, I'm very, very righteous. They amount, in Paul's view, to a pile of garbage. No, the only righteousness that truly counts is Christ in me. Unless, that is, you fail the test. Or in the King James, unless you are reprobate. See, he's told them, you're the seal of my apostleship. You can tell I'm an apostle by looking at you, that there's a church there. And yet his view of the church is that it is a combination, the church visible, the church gathered, of those who are truly saved and those who are not. Those who are present. There, there may be people here who aren't saved. In every church, we, we as Baptists, one of our distinctives is that we believe in a saved, baptized church membership. Which means in order to join, first we dunk you if you haven't been already, and then you confess your faith, profess your faith in Jesus, and then we accept you into membership. But all the same, there are people who profess with their lips, Lord, Lord, and yet they do not know Him. That is inevitable. And so basically Paul's saying, listen, I'm coming and I know the church will continue on. I know that the church will, will persevere but some of you may want to look inward and consider whether you're truly part of the church. And, and i got to point out that, that all of these imperatives in, in our passage today, these commands, they're in what's called the present continuous. We might translate this, keep on testing yourself. Keep on examining yourself. Keep on looking inward. And in verse 6, he essentially says, so if you figured it out that Jesus is in you and that you are in the faith, well, then you know that I'm an apostle because I'm the one who brought you the Christian faith. This is essentially, as you can tell, a summary of the case he's been building throughout the letter. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong, not that people will see that you have stood the test, but that you will do what is right, though we may see, seem to have failed. So he, he knows that if they do what he says, it will vindicate him. It'll be like, oh, clearly you are an apostle. You got control of this situation. But he doesn't even care about that. If it looks like we stood the test, or if it looks like we failed, if we arrive and everything's hunky-dory and the super apostles say, see, once again, he arrives and he's gentle, we don't care if we look like failures. We don't care about being vindicated. All we care about is building you up. Even in defending his apostleship, it's all about building them up. This is Christ-like attitude to the extreme, and I struggle with it. I don't know about you, but I love being vindicated. <laughs> Ironically, I love being vindicated about Bible stuff, because that's where you know, my expertise, my knowledge is. And so if someone says, oh, no, no, you're wrong. That's not in 1 John. That's in 1 Peter. And I'm like, really? <laughs> it is 1 John. Oh, that feels good. I, I enjoy every little morsel of that. We see in St. Paul... A different attitude, a different way. 
A way that says, I don't care about looking big. I don't care about my, that's super apostle stuff. My reputation, my, my appearance of power and knowledge and eloquence. I care about building you. That's what I'm all about. And so there's this paradox in verse 9 of Paul saying, when I look weak and you look strong, I rejoice. Because what makes Paul as an apostle look strong and powerful? It's when he shows up and, and he brings the hammer down. And he says, with my apostolic authority, I put you out of the church. I call you to repentance. And all these things. He says, I don't want to do it. I'd rather look weak. Because your faith is strong. This is a very Christ-like attitude that must be present in a church if it's a healthy church. That I would rather look weak while you grow in faith than for me to exert and show how, how powerful, how wise, how knowledgeable I am and you don't grow. That I care more about building others up. It's a very, very much a paradox, but then again, this is the kingdom. I keep on reminding you, where the first or last, the last or first, and the greatest is like a little child. And so, so far he is from grieving about looking weak that he says, when you look strong and I look weak, I rejoice. Restoration is what he wants. And he tells them, seek after it. Strive. Strive for restoration. Our prayer is for your restoration. Why? Verse 10 tells us, this is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. You know, restoration there comes from the same root as the verb, when Jesus is walking along the beach, where I recently was, and uh, he comes upon these men who are mending their nets. Remember that? They're mending their nets. So that means they would have been fishing and fishing. These things are getting old. They're getting weak. And in some places, they break apart, they tear apart, and they would tie them together again. They would bring in new string or rope, and they would tie it together. That mending the nets, that's the same root here as restoration. I want you... I want you tying together where things have been torn apart. I, I want the schisms, these divisions, this, this disorder in your worship, this sin that you're tolerating in your midst. It's all coming apart. And my prayer is that you're beginning to tie it back together. Therefore, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? Because this is why he wants all this, so that his sharpness will be in his letters rather than in his deeds or in his words face to face. Finally, we come to what the scriptures call the final greeting, the conclusion, the exhortation at the end. Finally, brothers, goodbye. That's the NIV. I love that. Finally, brothers, goodbye. Aim for perfection. Listen to my appeal. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. He, he comes again with this recap, bringing him through the letter. Five precepts, five commands, again, all in the ongoing present tense. Keep on doing these things. One of the commands is goodbye, oddly enough. We, we don't really think about that as a command, but you might say farewell. That's sort of a command, right? Fare thee well. I, I'm, I'm telling you, be well. I'm telling you, I wish for your wellness and wholeness, your shalom. This is a standard parting, but it's also, in a sense, a command. It comes from the word Cairo, which means to rejoice. And some Bible translations even translate this as, finally, rejoice. Or finally, be glad. That's a command. And, and you think, how can that be a command? You know what's going on in my life? 
I, I can't be happy. I can't be glad. I can't rejoice. Well, the key word there is joy. Rejoice. Joy doesn't wait for circumstances to be perfect before it rejoices in the Lord and rejoices in all things. Rejoice. That's a command. Today, now. The world sells this idea that you just have to wait a little while longer and then you'll get the joy. It's like we were just talking about these old um, TV shows, the, the reality TV shows. I admit they sucked me in. It was the early oddies, and they were like, okay, this guy's not really a millionaire, but we told these ladies that he is, and wait until the one that he picks finds out. And they would keep on saying, listen, after the break, they're going to they're gonna tell the guy. And then they would come back from the break. They'd do something else. Okay, after the And then later on, they'd be like, okay, but next week. We have this kick the can, just a little more, and then you'll have joy. When you're in school, listen, when you graduate, then you'll have joy. And you graduate. You go, well, yeah, but I'm single. I want to get married. Then I'll have joy. And you marry. You go, oh, man, when I have kids, that's where it is. The kids come. You're like, ee, well, all right. <laughs> Maybe when they graduate. And then we have all of this time to our, and then they graduate and you miss them. And you say, oh, we wish, well, okay, when I retire, then I'll have joy. And you retire. You go, all right, well, maybe when I die, then I'll have joy. Listen, rejoice today. This is the day that the Lord has made. Look outside, it's like manifest destiny. It's so beautiful out. This is a day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And notice those disciples in Jerusalem or Thessalonica where they're facing persecution or severe poverty, they seemed able to rejoice just fine. But in Corinth, where they had it all, they were discontented. And yet, joy is the antidote to the sort of backbiting and, and hostility and rivalries that they were experiencing. It's, it's a powerful vaccine against the false teaching of the super apostles that says, find your identity in the outward stuff of life. Not if you have inward joy. You're not going to fall for that. They needed this command. They needed to not skip over it as, eh, goodbye, goodbye to you. But to recognize he's telling them, rejoice. Next, he says, be perfect. That's one translation. Okay. That's a little bit too extreme a translation. But be restored is a little too weak. That's very passive. And what he's actually commanding, I think the NIV hits the nail square on the head, the new NIV, when it says, strive for full restoration. Strive for full restoration. That's one word in the Greek, but that's a good summary of what it's saying. Be restored sounds nice. But full restoration, full reconciliation, it's something that you've got to strive for. It takes some effort. You're tying these nets back together for a while. And sometimes arguments even break out in the tying. And yet he's saying where there are breaches in this church, those are the places where the enemy will come in. That's exactly where you're opening yourself up to the deceits of the enemy and the temptations of the, the evil one. Be restored. Strive for full restoration. Striving to make things right. Looking into yourselves and repenting. Then he says, comfort one another. They were often doing the opposite, right? Comfort one another. Don't make each other need comfort. Don't attack one another. Encourage one another. This is one of the ties that binds our hearts in Christian love. You guys ever sing that song? Blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love. This is one of those. Encouraging each other continually binding each other up, binding each other to ourselves and binding us to each other. 
Encouraging each other, protecting against division and discord and all that comes with it. Then he says, be of one mind. Be of one mind. Remember, there was all those factions all the way back in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, he starts getting into, I hear there are schisms, there are factions, sects among you. And I don't like it, and God doesn't like it. And so be of one mind. Literally, think the same thing. And he's not pushing for total uniformity. Be automatons and walk around with no opinions of your own. No, he is saying strive as you have strived for restoration. Strive for harmony. Even though there are little disagreements, mend these nets together and get out there and be fishers of men and women. Go out there and carry on the mission with one mind, single-mindedness, and let the rest of that stuff go. And then the fifth one, finally, live in peace. It goes along with be of one mind, pushing for harmony and unity. Art translates this, keep the peace. So yes, this is a recap of what's come before, but it's looking completely forward, going forward, which is the only way that you actually can go. And he says, as you're going forward, these are the things to keep in mind. Rejoice today. Find restoration where you start to pull apart, come back together. And when you come back together, encourage each other. And as you're encouraging each other, you'll find that you have unity and oneness of mind, and then you can live in peace, and the God of love and peace will live with you. And notice that his doxology here is benediction at the end. This is the same benediction I use week after week after week. This is the ultimate benediction, the gold standard here. Finally, brothers, live in peace, and the God of peace Love and peace will be with you. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This incredibly human letter ends with this incredibly heavenly, lofty benediction. And I don't know if you noticed kind of the humanness of it. It made it hard to preach, honestly. Like, this guy's mad and he's yelling at these people. Okay, I don't want to get mad and yell at my people. What do I do? But, but at the end, it becomes clear that it's all about building them up. And it's not just building them up for their own sake. It's building them up for the glory of God. It's worth noting this is an example of Trinitarian theology. God as Trinity in the New Testament. It's there throughout, even though the word Trinity does not occur. And, and we read here about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes first. For we need it to know the love of God, the Father. God was revealed to us in the man, Jesus Christ. And then the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, or the communion of the Holy Spirit. And, and whoever has one, has the other two. They come together inseparably, just as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inseparable. It's abundantly clear from the Scriptures that this is something that brings God glory. When we find restoration... When we say, okay, we've got the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been forgiven much, so I love much. I have been forgiven much, so I forgive much. And we're restored. We're reconciled. If you don't have forgiveness to give, have you received it? And if you've received it and you don't have it to give, what would you do with it? If it's been squandered, we need to repent and turn back to him and ask that he will fill us with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Now he starts this whole passage with, test yourselves, examine yourselves, look within yourselves. And many people, as they read this, they go, wait a minute, 
where does he give us the test? Because I want to take it. Right? Is it like one of these things in Cosmo where I fill it all out and it tells me if I'm in the faith or not? He doesn't, he doesn't give them the test. Throughout the rest of the New Testament, it becomes clear, though, that to test yourself, to examine yourself as to whether or not you are in the faith, means to ask the tough questions like, do I have a growing awareness of Christ's presence in me? Is, is God's power in Christ and through the Holy Spirit indwelling in me is that influence growing? Is there a growing sense, awareness of my sin, and a growing sorrow over my sin? Or am I kind of getting used to my sin and just managing it, making sure it stays under the surface? This is the stuff Jesus warned about with the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law throughout his ministry. Makes me think of this story about the Queen Mary. You know, the Queen Mary, this largest ship to cross the oceans when it was launched in the 1930s. And through decades, it, it sailed across the ocean and through a world war, and then eventually they decided it would be permanently moored there in California. It would be a museum and a hotel. I've always wanted to see it, but that means going to California. But during this conversion, they had this idea, you know, those smokestacks don't look great. We could give them another coat of paint. Or, what if we take all the paint off and then we repaint them? You know, kind of a full restoration. So they began to scrape away the paint and found that the smokestacks literally crumbled. That there was just about nothing left of the three-quarter inches of steel that had made them, had comprised them initially. What was left was 30 layers of paint. Those were now the smokestacks and a bunch of junk and corroded stuff inside. And they had to rebuild them from scratch. Jesus said that's essentially what the Pharisees were doing. Whitewashed tombs. Looks good on the outside, but inside. If they'd examined themselves, they'd find that they needed to repent and turn to Him, and their death, inner death, would become life. One way that we can examine ourselves and see that God is at work is that I'm willing to do what Paul was willing to do there. I'm willing to look small and weak if it means I'm being faithful and building someone up. I'm willing to even look maybe like I dropped the ball and I'm ineffective if it means that I will make progress for the kingdom. This is something we all struggle with. And you know, it's, it's difficult to grow in this area because there are a few opportunities that come up. And when they do, we often drop the ball and then in retrospect go, oh my goodness, I really could have been more Christ-like. I want to suggest something we could do this very week that would help stretch us in this way. And that is to do an act of Christian service. Do something kind for someone in secret. And then don't tell a soul about it. Don't tell me. Don't tell each other. This would be a really easy sermon application to not carry out because we'll all just assume the best of each other. But, but do something kind and do something that requires even a bit of sacrifice. And do something where you are giving up the opportunity to look big and powerful or kind and magnanimous and instead let God have that glory. And sit back and thank God that you have the opportunity in this Christ-like way to build someone else up. Not for your own purposes, but for the kingdom of God. And then stop and ask yourself, is it hard not to tell the world this nice thing I've done? Hashtag whatever. 
Is it, is it hard for me to do something for God's glory, even if it means I am giving up my own? And then ask yourself this, how am I becoming more like Christ? How am I blessed by blessing others? And Lord, give me more opportunities to be blessed in this way. I've taken part in a, a thing where, well, now I'm telling people about it, but we were supposed to, for a, a whole week, carry out specific type things. And by the end of the week, everybody said, well, I hadn't done all of them. But where and when I had helped someone, forgiven someone, done a good turn for someone with no expectation that I'd be given, I felt more blessed than in any other area of my life. Where, where I'd gone out and, and said, I have the opportunity now to, to either hold a grudge and point out this guy screwed up, not my fault, and I took a bullet instead and said, yeah, I'll work harder on that. And then I, and then I helped that person with their situation. Anytime I had done something like that, I felt blessed. I found that to be the case as well. I pray that you will prayerfully think about where God might give you opportunities to do this sort of thing. Where I say, I am most rejoicing when I look weak and you look strong because all the gifts I have, God gave me for building others up. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, I confess that, that even in my work as a pastor, I often want to, to uh, take credit and shun blame and, Lord, look good and, and not look weak. And, Lord, we know that all of us in our lives, we, we strive for that, to kind of build up the image of me. And, and Lord, we, we know that is not a Christ-like quality. And we pray that we would be uh, con convinced and convicted in our hearts to repent of that. And that we would find that instead of building ourselves up and tearing others down, we would more and more, because Christ lives in us, want to build others up and humble ourselves. Lord, we know that it is difficult because there are constantly a barrage from the outside, from the culture, of messages that tell us to be all about us, to look out for number one. But Lord, as we do that, we pray that you would be number one. That we would make you our priority. And we would follow you in lives of self-sacrifice and service. In your holy name we pray. Amen.